Good morning, Tabernacle. Thank you so much uh, for worshiping with us on this beautiful uh, northern Michigan sunny day in March. What's happening? I don't know what to do with myself. A special welcome to Manistee. It was uh, uh, great to worship with you last weekend and also to Cadillac. We're one church in three locations. It's our third open service in Cadillac and it's pretty exciting what's going on down there. Um, Oh yeah, we're still clapping for Cadillac. Everybody loves Cadillac, yeah. We haven't forgotten Manistee, but just uh, one quick word before we get into our study. Um, We have had a packed house there for two straight weeks, and I believe again uh, today. And one of the things I love about our church is how many people from Buckley and Manistee have decided to sneak over uh, to that location for a visit. And we love that. We're glad that you did that. Uh, But I just want to draw your attention to one thing. Our children's ministry there, Tab Kids, is absolutely at capacity. So feel free to visit Cadillac, absolutely, and Manistee. But if you're going to Cadillac and you have kids, don't. (laughs) Is that okay to say? We have plenty of room here, and we have plenty of room in Manistee. Right now, we want to have uh, plenty of room for people from Cadillac to put their uh, kids and tab kids there until we start a second service. Is that fair to say? Can we do that, church family? That's awesome. We want you to visit. We love it. And if you've already done it, don't don't get sad. You weren't wrong for doing that, but stop it. So... um, Yeah, if uh, you have a Bible, if you'll turn uh, to 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, either a Bible or on a flat screen, uh, while you're turning there, uh, I wanna ask this question. If you were told that you had 24 hours to live, if you had one day to live, how would you spend it? Last day on earth, what would you do? Maybe for some of us, it's, I'm going to drain that bank account. Maybe you're going to paint the town. Maybe you're going to go on a raging bender. Maybe there's some phone calls that you'd want to make. Or do some things that you'd been meaning to do for quite a while. But if you only had 24 hours to live, how would you spend that last day? Now, if you keep that in mind, we want to move to our study, and, and as, as we go through, we're just going to cover the first part of uh, 1 Kings 12. I want to remind you again that all of the Bible is about Jesus. And so there's lessons in the Old Testament where we are that we can learn, but more importantly, somehow it all points us to Jesus. All the Old Testament points to Jesus, all of the New Testament points to Jesus, So as we read the story, we're going to be looking for the lesson, but we're also going to be looking for Jesus and how it points to us, how it applies to our lives. So in uh, uh, 1 Kings 12, starting in verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon... Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father has made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. And so the people went away. 
Now, I want to pause there, keep your finger there, I want to explain something, because there's a lot of Boams that you're going to see, right? There's Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, uh, who has died, and now he's the oldest son. He's made king at Shechem, which was a holy place for these people. And at his coronation, there's another Boam, Jeroboam, who had worked for his father. Then his father grew jealous of him and tried to kill him. So he's been living in exile in Egypt. As far as I know, these are the only Boams we have. Rehoboam, the king, Jeroboam, kind of like the pretender, and I don't think there's any Meoboams or Uoboams, but just stay with the Boams and we'll be all right. And at his coronation, Jeroboam comes back, and he kind of represents the people, and they come to King Rehoboam, and they ask him, hey, your father was a hard taskmaster. Would you lighten the load the forced labor, the taxes, all the things on the backs of these people that made it great. If you'll lighten the load, we'll serve you. Verse six. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise me that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And so this is classic. Uh, He's looking for advice. And so he goes to the wise older men. There is wisdom in the aged, yes? And so he goes to seek the ancient wisdom. In the book of Job, it speaks about this ancient wisdom that belongs to God. And so he goes to the old men, the counselor to his father, and he says, how shall I answer them? And they answer him, if you will be a servant to these people and lighten their load, they'll serve you forever. And there's a whole different sermon here about what good leadership is. Good leadership is servant leadership. But he doesn't listen to the counsel of the old men. Instead, he goes to his bros, Now there's another message in there for the dudes that are here today. The old bro science wisdom, right? 
the young hangers-on as he was a rich kid growing up in the household of Solomon that probably just hung out with him because he had a new truck and the new PS5 and all that stuff. He goes to these guys who see an opportunity and they're like, we know what you should tell them. You think it was bad with dad? Tell them your pinky finger is thicker than your father's thighs. It's okay. I thought the same thing. Why the thighs, bro? Why are you talking about Solomon's thighs? Apparently, it was a thing in the culture. Tell them you're going to double down on the load. He disciplined you with whips. You'll discipline them with scorpions. And that's what he does. Instead of listening to old wisdom, he listens to the wisdom of the parade of fools that he calls his friends. And we'll see the results. And there's one more little interesting verse there in 15. It says, this whole thing was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. God knew this is how he would respond. Remember, God had told Solomon, because of your sin, because you have chased money, sex, and power, and have forsaken me and chased after idols, I'm gonna tear away the kingdom from your family line. So this was to fulfill God's word, but make no mistake, Rehoboam had a choice. God just knew how he would choose. Back to the story, verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. And so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So this is what's happening here. After the people hear the response, And the response is, you exist to serve me. I will not serve you. I'm going to double down. Their response in what portion do we have in the house of David, what they're saying is, what good is it for us to remain with this country? Why should we be loyal to you? And in that expression, when it says, to your tents, O Israel, that's basically saying, go home, or if you watch the Godfather movie, to the mattresses. To the mattresses, this means war. And what we have as a result is the divided kingdom of Israel. Now, Rehoboam doesn't know that, that these people, like he's completely oblivious, as many people in government tend to be. And, and, and so he goes ahead and sends his taskmaster, the man who was in charge of the forced labor. The same thing that Solomon had done, even though he was warned not to do it, don't use forced labor, But that was one of the little corners that Solomon cut that cost him the kingdom. It wasn't the only corner he cut. And so when he sends Adoram to get the people to do the work, they stone him to death. This is the Israel equivalent of the shots fired at Fort Sumter that started the American Civil War. Now there's blood. 
There's division, there's rebellion, now there's death. And Rehoboam runs for his life. He gets in his chariot, goes all the way back to Jerusalem. And what we have is a separation of the kingdoms. They find this pretender Jeroboam and they make him king over all of Israel. Rehoboam is king of now what is called Judah. So if you were to look at a map, he's, he's king over the southernmost part of what was Israel, but now all of the northern tribes are serving Jeroboam. And this is helpful, you need to pay attention to this because as you read the rest of Kings and, and, and Second Kings and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, all through the rest, you're ever gonna, you know, forever can be confused by, wait, I thought we were with the children of Israel, now who is this Judah? It's the same thing, they're just split, it's a divided kingdom. But remember that Judah was preserved because of God's promise that someday from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, from the line of Solomon, and even from this fool, Rehoboam, there would come the Messiah, the King of Kings. And so one last little bit here, verse 21. It says, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel, Every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. And so they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Now this is remarkable, and, and, and it's in some cases, or I guess you could say understandable, Rehoboam's not gonna go quietly. Israel had been at its, its height under his father, and so as a king would, he assembles an army to go force the kingdoms to unite. 180,000 warriors. This means war, we're going to war. Brother against brother, a civil war. But then this verse, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. I had to fight hard not to preach that sermon, but I'll just give it to you for free, all right? The word of God to the man of God. Now this Shemaiah, this prophet, we don't know hardly anything about him. In fact, this is the only place this Shemaiah is even mentioned. But how profound is that? The word of God came to the man of God and he delivered the word of God as a man of God. And he says to them, don't do this. God is saying to you that this is from God. This is the judgment. This is the prophecy. Don't don't fight, don't attack your brothers. The word of God to the man of God. What's even more amazing to me is that the people listened. It gives me hope that the word of God spoken by the man of God, the people still listen to it. And they all go back to their homes. This whole story is about this question, this idea serve or be served, serve or be served. 
And that's not just a question for them, it's a question for us. Every minute of every day. What the world tells us is that there are two types of people in this world, those who serve and those who enjoy being served. Or to put it uh, in even more extreme words, that there's two types of people, those who use people and those who get used by people. That's the message of the world. With hearts full of sin, we work very hard so we're not those that get used. We instead want to use other people. When Israel, the assembly, comes to the coronation, they have a very reasonable request. The yoke that your father put on us is heavy. Would you lighten the yoke? Would you lighten the service? Would you lighten our burden? If you will do this, we'll serve you forever. But Rehoboam, you can see, he's like, wait a minute, I deserve this. I'm the oldest son, I'm the king, kingdom promised to me. No, you people exist to serve me. That's where the conflict is. And he's not having it, even though he's advised to do that. Did you catch those words? If you will be a servant to these people. Isn't that what we want from our government authorities? To actually be servants of the people? I'm not trying to make this political. And I'm not gonna. But that's what a good leader does. Whether it's a boss, teacher, coach, you name it, parent. Good leadership is about serving. But Rehoboam gets caught up in the desire, the worldly desire to be served. And it costs him the kingdom. So where's Jesus in this passage? There's a couple verses in my study that jumped out to me. If you go all the way back to their request, verse four, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us. Where have I heard that before? And then later in verse seven, the old counselor say, if you'll be a servant to this people and serve them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. So it got me thinking about Jesus because essentially what these people are asking for is they're asking for a better king. They're saying we want a better king than what your father was. And that's the story of all the kings in the Old Testament. You know, even David, a man after God's own heart, but still an adulterer, a murderer, not a really good father. His successor is Solomon. Well, maybe he'll be a better king. He starts out great. He asks God for wisdom. God makes him the wisest man who ever lived. Israel achieves the highest status it's ever had in the world, but he's not the better king. Chasing money, sex, and power. And, 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 and by the way, when you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, you probably have a lot of kids. Would you agree? What kind of dad do you think he was? Probably not very present, was he? And then you add to the fact that his life became filled with idols and idolatry. We're still looking for a better king. And so now we have Rehoboam and, and they start to articulate what they want in a better king. Someone with a lighter yoke. That brings us to Jesus. 900 years later, the king of kings, the son of God. In verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I 
will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just by a show of hands, here, Manistee, Cadillac, who's heard those words before? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Beautiful, kind words from the Savior, right? Now, just a couple thoughts about that. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's not saying that following Jesus is easy. But if you think about it in context, he's talking to people who were used to being very religious, The religious yoke that many of us even have been either exposed to or grew up with was a yoke of clean up yourself, do all of these behaviors and don't do all of these behaviors and check all these boxes and check all these boxes and if you get it right, you can clean up the outside of yourself and appear to be good. Meanwhile, it's all masking that nothing has changed inside your heart and inside your soul. So the burden of life is hard enough, right? The burden of life is hard enough, right? You eat, sleep, go to work, come home, wash, rinse, repeat until you die. Relationships are hard and work is hard and finances are hard and health issues make it hard. And we have all of these burdens with depression, with anxiety, and then you throw in politics, right? Life is hard enough. But then when you add to that, you're trying to somehow Make yourself good enough for God so that you can live forever when you die. So when Jesus comes in and says, ho, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's saying all this religious stuff that you've been doing because of the gospel, because God sent his son Jesus to die for you, I can take care of all of that. I've checked all the boxes because I know you can't and you won't. That's why it says we're saved by grace. And this only comes through faith, that it's a gift of God. It's not how good you are that makes you a Christian. This is why forever, when you're inviting people to church, we've said this before, and they tell you, I'll never go to that church. Church is full of hypocrites. Agree with them. Say, I know, and I'm one of them, and so are you, and we've got room for more. (laughs) Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is exactly the better king that they're asking for. You guys know what I mean when I talk about a yoke? It's a big wooden beam you see laid across two oxen with the little loop that they use to pull the cart or pull the burden or whatever. I like to think about that yoke, and we don't know exactly, you know, did Jesus mean a single yoke or a double yoke? I like to think of it as a double yoke, and I'm the weak oxen. And Jesus is in that yoke with me. And when the burden gets heavy, He's pulling because he's bigger than me and he's stronger than me and he's wiser than me and he knows the way. So it doesn't mean that it's all gonna be rainbows and unicorns. Following Jesus is just frosted lucky charms. No, but he can make it easier. He can make the burden light. He's the better king. If you flip over just a few chapters, right over in chapter 20, he speaks to what the old men had said. So the people ask for a lighter yoke that's only fulfilled in Jesus. The older men says what you really need to do, Rehoboam, is be a servant. And in chapter 20 of Matthew, there's this moment where uh, uh, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
came to do what all good mothers do, and that's advocate for their children. She fell on her knees before Jesus. This is later in his ministry. And, and she said, Lord, would you grant me this request that when you come into your kingdom, that my son sit at your right and your left hand. And the scripture says that all the other disciples got mad, probably because they asked first. She was a better soccer mom. She was a better helicopter mom, right? She's on the PTA. She's there to make things happen for her boys. And so Jesus teaches all of them a better way what it would really mean and that they had no idea what they were asking. And he tells them, you know, that's the way the world views things, serve or be served. Verse 26, he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Rehoboam thought he was great because he was king. He missed this. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. He says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What was Jesus about? Jesus is saying to them, I came in order to be a servant. How remarkable is that? The Son of God, God in flesh, the King of kings, the master of the universe. He didn't come with the big limo. He didn't come with the entourage. He didn't come looking like a big deal. By the way, that's why they killed him because he didn't look like they expected a worldly king should look. His kingdom is greater and he came as a servant. I came not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. The only way to God is to receive Christ by faith and the forgiveness that he bought and paid for with his blood on a cross. That was his mission. What does this have to do with us? It's very simple. Disciples of Jesus, disciples serve like Jesus. That's what he was teaching them in Matthew chapter 20. Disciple, you wanna be with me? You gotta serve like me. You want the left hand, the right hand? You wanna be a big deal? Disciples serve like Jesus. Isn't that what a disciple does? They follow their leader. They act like him. They mimic him. They serve him. They're changed to be like him. So if you're gonna be a disciple, you're called to serve like Jesus. I, I, I had someone after the first service saying, I didn't see this Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Meoboam, Meoboam sermon going that way. Well, it's right there, plain as day. They were asking for a better king, one who would say, look, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But if you wanna be like me, you're gonna find the way up is first to go down. Disciples serve like Jesus. And I think it's important for us to look at this because I believe for many Christians, if not most Christians, this is the missing link. Has your faith kind of waned? Has your love for God and love for people kind of gone cold? Are you feeling far from him? You know, I find myself in conversations like this all the time and the question is really simple. Who, what, or where are you serving? Because disciples serve like Jesus. Serving transforms us. 
When I serve, it takes the focus off self and it puts it on God and it puts it on people. It's a missing part of many of our discipleship plan. We may read the Bible, we may go to church, we may attend a group, and we're wondering what's missing. You're not serving anybody. You're getting a lot of knowledge, enjoying some great singing. I got a brand new campus. Who, what, or where are you serving? Because disciples serve like Jesus. You know, Matthew chapter 25 is, is, I think, one of the most frightening passages in all of scripture. It deals with the judgment, and it's Jesus' own words. If you have a red letter Bible, they're in red. And Jesus describes the last judgment like this, that before him, the only righteous judge, we will be separated as sheep and goats, the sheep unto eternal life, the goats unto eternal death. And he says to the sheep, when you saw me hungry, when you saw me thirsty, when you saw me naked, when you saw me in prison, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, you serve me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they go, Lord, when did we see this happen? He goes, whenever you did that for anyone, whenever you served one another, you served me. And of course, the goats are like, when did, when did we see that happen? Whenever you did not serve. You saw me hungry, you did nothing. You saw me thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. You saw me naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was alone and isolated, imprisoned, literally or figuratively, you didn't come visit me. That's scary to think about. It seems to say serving is a big deal. Now you may think that I'm trying to be manipulative today. I'm not. This is a hard thing to say to people that I can be judged for saying it. I beg of you, believe me when I say I'm serving you now. Someone's gotta say it. Disciples serve like Jesus. Who, what, where are you serving right now? And if you're not, why not? Why not? Rehoboam missed it. Because that's the question, serve or be served. And he demanded they serve him. And some of us, we go through life, we expect it of our waiters and our waitresses, we expect it in our business deals, we expect it from school administrators and teachers and anyone we come around with that you're here to serve me. We expect it of our spouses, we expect it of our children, we expect it of our parents. We've got it the wrong way around. Disciples serve like Jesus. It's the key to greatness. Well, how do we do that? Practically, here's the first thing I think it's important for us because I can talk about serving all day long and you're thinking that, oh, out in the lobby, people are waiting with clipboards to get you signed up to do something you don't wanna do. How about I go this way? Serve right where you are. That's a great place to start. Serve right where you are. If you're married and you think that he or she that you're married to exists to serve your needs, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, that's not a healthy marriage. It may not last long. In fact, for some of us, that could turn our marriage around. 
If you read the book of Ephesians, it seems to lay that out as the key to a healthy marriage. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Your husband, your job is to die. And wives, submit to your husbands. Both of you are there to serve. Serve right where you are. It could start in a marriage. It could start in the, you know, you, you expand it into the family. Children, how can you serve your parents? Do you know how hard it is to be a parent? And they call you names like Boomer. <laughs> and you bought them that daggone phone that's like your phone, but only they know how to work your phone. Would you fix this for me? What if... What if students were like, hey, how can I serve my parents? What if parents realize these kids don't exist to glorify you? How do I serve my children? How do I serve at school? And yes, how do I serve at church? But we start by serving right where we are. Some of us, we wait to serve when people are watching and there is a clipboard. Okay, it's time for me to pony up and do the program. No, if you're not a servant naturally, why would I want you to come here and fake it? That's the hype of hypocrisy. We're called to serve at home, at work, at school. Serve right where you are. That's what Jesus did. He walked around a lake for three years with 12 of his best friends. And they saw these needs and they served. Wherever, wherever he was, bottom of a boat, you know, in a, in a building when the roof caved in and a paralyzed man was lowered down. In a, in a crush of people that Pastor Adam talked about and somebody grabbed the hem of his garment. He was rushing to the bedside of a dying young girl, but he stopped and he served. Serve right where you are. You know, it says in Philippians chapter one, which by the way, is the most happy, clappy book of the Bible. Right? It's full of joy. Paul writes this letter from prison. How is that possible? He writes a letter from prison and right in chapter one, he points out that he's in prison, that he's in chains and in and this goofball, he's like, oh, being in prison and being in chains has actually served to advance the kingdom of God. You know why? He had a captive audience. He started preaching to the guards. He starts preaching to the whole household of everyone that was there. Dude, if you had to bring food to Paul, you were getting a sermon. You know why? Because he served right where he was. That's what we're called to do. Serve right where you are. If you're a disciple, you serve like Jesus. Here's the second application that I think is just as important. And some of you might misunderstand this, but I don't want you to. Serve needs, not your gifts. Start by serving needs, not your gifts. Now, what I did not say is that you don't use your gifting in serving, okay? What I'm referring to right here is what the Bible teaches, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, that the moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, and all of us have a spiritual gift. And we take spiritual gift tests, and people identify spiritual gifts in us, and, and they're wonderful things to be used for the building up of other people, not ourselves. But many of us... We won't serve unless it's in our gifting and we're missing it. In fact, we hide behind our gifting. There's needs all around us. At home, in church, at school, with our neighbors, at work. 
If you wait for it to match your gifting, you're really only serving yourself. When my wife and I became parents, I don't think either one of us were naturally gifted at poopy diapers and puke. But there's a need, and daddy's gotta learn a new skill. We serve the need, don't serve your gifts. Now it's a magical thing when your gift and the need match, right? That might be a calling. But some of us are waiting so long because we see a need, even in Cadillac. Well, you know, we've got all these kids and this and that. Well, I'm not called to kids. You know, kids drive me nuts. I'd really rather we not have any more kids and they're frightening. And it, well, there's a need. I've served in children's ministry because it was a need. Am I called to children's ministry? No. But I learned how to hold a captive audience because my wife said, I've got snack time, you've got story time. Yes, ma'am. And so guess what? You're just older, wrinklier kids and I'm using skills that I learned <laughs> in the kids, men, 30 years ago, right? We're doing it now. Serve needs, not your gifts. Serve needs before the gifts. And sometimes just in the serving, you figure out what the gifts are. I'm thinking about a friend of mine who served last night here at the Buckley campus. He's got multiple degrees. He's got a medical degree. He owns his own business. And his spiritual gift is teaching. One of the most gifted teachers that I know. But you know what he did last night at his church? He opened doors for people and greeted them and sat them. He sees a need. Oh, he uses his gifts too. But that's for all of us. Serve needs, not your gifts. You wonder what's missing in your life? What's missing in your discipleship? Who, what, where are you serving? I don't believe that Jesus was naturally gifted at suffering and dying. But Jesus saw my need and suffered and died on a cross. The bottom line is we're called to serve. We're called to serve right where we are, wherever there's a need. In a few moments, we're gonna celebrate a communion together this weekend where we'll celebrate his ultimate service to us. But I wanna answer that question. What would you do if you had 24 hours to live? What would you do if you had one day to live? Do you know how Jesus' last day went. He had 24 hours to live. And he served by washing feet. He served by hosting a Passover meal. After the meal, he served the first communion. And then his ultimate service the next morning was he suffered and died on a cross so that I could be saved, so you can be saved, that anyone who calls on his name can be saved. The servant king, the king of kings, the better king, that's how he spent his last day. So would you bow your heads before we take communion? I wanna pray for us. God in heaven, I thank you for your word 
I thank you that all of scripture points to your son. Jesus, thank you for being the better king, the best king that we could ever hope for. Thank you that you're a different kind of king, a servant king. God, I thank you that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. God, would you forgive us for the times that we think that others exist to serve us? God, would you help us to be people that learn to give ourselves away, loving you with everything that we have? God, would you give us eyes to see the needs around us to serve those needs? God, would you help us to begin, even today, serving right where we are? God, would you help us to say yes to you? If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray today would be the day that they would place their faith and trust in the servant king, Jesus Christ. God, all of this is for your glory, for our joy, and for Christ's sake. And it's his, in his name that we pray, amen.